You gotta understand something here. This music is the glue of the world. It holds it all together. Without this, life would be meaningless. so crazy about it's just music Welcome to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Jim DeRogatis, the pop music critic at the Chicago Sun-Times. And I'm Greg Cott. I write about rock and roll for the Chicago Tribune. Today on the world's only rock and roll talk show, Jim and I are going to discuss the legacy of one of psychedelic rock's pioneers, Rocky Erickson. And we'll review the new album from country-tinged guitar pop band Rilo Kiley. You are listening to Sound Opinions, and now it's time for some music news. Lifestyles of the broken famous, let you know how crazy this game is. Look at all the new beautiful faces at home, supermodel, my spaces. Long for they shot on the TV screen. American Idol never seen these dreams. Just last week they want to see ID. Now they got you in VIP, huh? Greg, that is a song called Us Placers that's on a uh, popular new mixtape called Can't Tell Me Nothing by Kanye West. It's preceding his official album that comes out September 11th. The reason we're playing a mixtape song is we've got a follow-up to a story we covered a couple of months back. If you recall, the record industry was trying in a big way to shut down this business of DJs, producers, rappers putting out mixtapes, kind of casually made basement recordings, samplers of albums to come, alternate versions of songs that they have either released or, or will put out soon, and selling them basically as this cottage industry. DJ Drama was a popular mixtape producer who was uh, shut down by the recording industry. It's a big controversy. As with many things in popular culture, when something happens on the street and begins to make money, the industry then tries to co-opt it. (laughs) What we saw last week was Universal Music, one of the biggest remaining major labels, trying to fill the void that happened after the uh, Recording Industry Association began to crack down on mixtapes by putting out official mixtapes. It's created a new series called Lethal Squad Mixtapes that are going to sell for five or six bucks and essentially will be corporate versions of what had been this grassroots roots, street kind of way to release music. They see people making money. They ain't getting a piece of it. They want some. Yeah, you can't get any more street than Universal Records, huh, Jim? (laughs) Boy, oh boy. People are going to be flocking to these officially sanctioned mixtapes. The whole idea was that you could get a Kanye West song, an Eminem song, a Dr. Dre song months, even years before it was actually officially released on these mixtapes. It was a way for these major artists to promote themselves, to promote their protégés, to promote their side projects. And the record industry, for the most part, turned the other way, said, okay, this is fine. This is a a level of street promotion that, in effect, helps us because it helps promote our stars. Now with them sanctioning this stuff, I don't see anybody going for a fully sanctioned mixtape. I don't don't see the appeal of that. No, I don't think that's going to happen. DJ Drama had a great quote. He's got legal problems up the wazoo. We spend a lot of money fighting this. He said, how ironic. I guess they finally realized how important mixtapes are. Meanwhile, Kanye West was just given away that Can't Tell Me Nothing mixtape. Essentially, he's floating it all over the net. And I think that that's interesting to see these superstar artists experimenting, trying things on mixtapes, and then just giving the music away for free. Speaking of cutting-edge corporations, Jim, how about Walmart? They called iTunes bluff and actually undercut them in the pricing wars for 
MP3 digital files. Everybody knows uh, Walmart's opening its own music store in competition with iTunes. What they don't know, maybe, is that iTunes is selling those DRM-free MP3 files, in other words, files that you can do whatever you want with them, copy as many times as you want, share as many times as you want, for $1.29. Standard price is $0.99. Okay, fine. Walmart is saying, we're going to attach no restrictions to our MP3 files and sell them for $0.94. So they're undercutting iTunes in two ways. They're coming in $0.35 per MP3 file. That's a pretty amazing in-your-face iTunes move by Walmart. Again, nobody thinks of Walmart as cutting edge, but let's face it, a number of people buy their music at Walmart. With these kind of prices, $0.94 per MP3 file, $9.22 per full digital CD, they have undercut iTunes at its own game. It'll be interesting to see where this goes, Jim, but I think the fact that Walmart was able to get these kind of prices indicates how important they are to the music industry. I can't believe that the music industry wanted to sell their music at a lower price, but Walmart's basically saying, hey, if you want our business, if you want us to stay in business, you're going to let us keep this as a lost leader to bring people to our website. Greg, clearly with that song and so many others in rock history, Gary Newman was saying that people are often defined by the auto that they drive. <laughs> Car companies have always used music to sell their vehicles, but now there's something new. They are getting into the business of Internet radio. We've covered that story about how the government is trying to up the rates of royalties that internet radio stations must pay to artists and to record companies in order to play music to such a degree that many internet stations are saying they're going to go out of business. Where that stands right now is that it's uh, there's a bill before Congress. There's a lot of debate. There's been negotiations for months about setting a reasonable royalty that won't kill internet radio. Those negotiations seem to be hitting an impasse at the moment. The story has far from played out yet. But Let's imagine the future. Let's say that Congress does succeed in raising the royalties so that the mom-and-pop webcaster has to shut down. What's the future of Internet radio? One key is going to be that car manufacturers seem eager to start establishing Internet radio stations of their own. They don't mind paying higher royalty rates to play music and have their own station because for them it's essentially advertising. They're just viewing this this music, uh, not as music, it's content. It's branding. It's uh, you know <laughs> status conscious to go with your new car. Toyota has its Scion car. It's obviously trying to establish an image for that car. Why buy the Scion over all others? Well, one thing is we're going to have a Scion radio station. Scion broadband that you'll be able to listen to in your groovy new car as you drive <laughs> along. I don't see in the story so far any particular artists, uh, you know, who is a Scion artist as opposed to like, I don't know, a minivan artist. Oh, that's coming artist. though, right? It's got to be coming, you yeah. know what I mean? And so, you know, now all of popular music is going to be divided into what kind of car it's designed to sell. Let's not forget, Scion is trying to position itself as the cool brand, right? I mean, they were one of the corporate sponsors of the Pitchfork Festival. Pitchfork oh, that's doesn't right. talk about how many corporate sponsors they well, have. They don't shove it down your throat. They yeah. had about a dozen, and Sign was one of them. And they've enlisted people from uh, Vice Records and Ninja Tunes to do some of the programming for them. So they are trying to buy this cool factor. We're going to see whether or not it works on these 18 to 35-year-old car buyers that they're aiming at. But, uh, you know, i got to say, this is like Universal going into business with the mixtapes. It's, right, it's the right, same kind right. of thing. You cannot buy cool. Harry. You knew this was coming, Pete. <laughs> Listen to me! I didn't kill your father! He was trying to kill me! He killed himself! <laughs> 
That's a soundbite from the summer's biggest movie hit, Spider-Man 3, $336 million strong at the box office and still going strong. The movie industry having a remarkable summer season, one of its biggest, if not its biggest, of all time. The reason we're talking about a movie in the context of a uh, ostensibly a music show, Jim, is that uh, we're curious about what's happening in the movie industry versus the music industry these days. Both industries are facing similar issues with downloading, piracy. The music industry is in the toilet. The best-selling record of the year so far is by former American Idol Chris Daughtry, selling at $3 million, which is respectable. But not uh, huge, not a $10 million, $15 million blockbuster of yore. And it's actually a 2006 release, mm-hmm. and I would add, carbon copy Creed, which was horrible third-rate Pearl Jam, so you're three times removed from anything good. Mm -hmm. Um, Boy, it's sad when that's the best record of 2007. We're waiting for a blockbuster from the music industry, and and the music industry thrives on that business model. Multiple albums selling 6 million, 7 million, 8 million copies a year, and that generates enough revenue to support, you know, the losers in the music industry. Well, right now, the the winners are are few and far between, and the losers are piling up in the music industry in terms of these kinds of sales. So we wanted to look at what's happening in the music industry and why the movie industry, facing similar kind of problems, is, uh, is doing so much better. Jeff Leeds is a reporter out in Los Angeles who covers the music business and the culture of music for the New York Times. Jeff, hello and welcome to Sound Opinions. Thank you. Jeff, what we want to talk to you about is this dichotomy between what's happening in the movie world and in the music world. Well, one thing that I think is fascinating is that I'm not sure there is much of a sort of split in, in the sense of the what's controlling the content right now. And, and by that, I mean that in both industries, you know, we've recently seen this sort of kind of overwhelming dominance of releases, both in films and in music, that are that are really triumphs of marketing and concept over what I would consider sort of more original creations. And by that, I mean, if you look at the charts this week, for example, and this is a, this is a trend that's been, you know, been holding up and building for a while now, you have, you know, High School Musical 2 is the number one record in the country this week and is the second biggest debut of the year. And then also on the, in the top 10 this week, you've got Hannah Montana, which is another, you know, Disney creation that's sort of driven by the kind of uh, cross-pollination between Disney's television channel and Disney's radio network and so on and so forth. You know, you've got something like six out of the top 20 records in the country now are they're really just sort of marketing concepts that were kind of invented for and promoted directly to children. In the movie business this summer, you're right, we had this sort of incredible summer where you had, I think, four movies that all generated more than $300 million domestically. You had Spider-Man 3, Shrek 3, um, Pirates of the Caribbean 3, and Transformers. And if you look at those, much like the records you were talking about, they're franchises. They're franchises, they're and they're not, even, they're not even franchises that were, general, that, that were specifically from original creations. You know, I think it's sort of interesting that both these industries are kind of suffering from a, a sort of a creative death right now. And I, it just is sort of fascinating, I guess, that the movie business has been able to take these kind of concepts and franchises and sort of build them into a treasure chest, and the music industry has been largely unable to do so. Although I would now, point, now, out, why, that the, I'd that point out that the, it is the conceptual sort of, these sort of contrived you know, records that are the ones that are selling in the right. music business. Um, but, but, Jeff, I mean, you know, Hollywood is certainly as frightened of the kid sitting in his or her dorm room 
downloading Pirates of the Caribbean as opposed to paying money to go out and see it in the theater as the music industry is frightened of that same kid sitting downloading Ali and AJ's record as opposed to buying it. It's true, but the, the difference is that the, that the Hollywood studios, who are very concerned about piracy, have had this you know, incredible luxury of time to sort of deal with the problem because the bottom line is that they have a couple of different sources of revenue that all come from the same thing, right? You have the original theatrical release, you have a DVD release, you have uh, you know television um, and cable you know reperformances of these movies, and so they're they're making money from all these different things. And as the record companies lament to me constantly, they only have really one source of cash, which is the CD, and to a degree, you know, the digital stuff and ringtones and whatnot. As soon as sort of piracy started to become somewhat of an issue, it, it immediately took this sort of bite out of their one and only revenue stream. And I think the Hollywood studios have just had more time partially because of that and partially because the experience of a movie is just something that people like to experience. It's still in the movie theater. You know, you can't really replicate that experience at home or on your computer. And, you know, if kids become more accustomed to watching stuff on their computer and they don't really care about the immersive nature of being in a movie theater, then Hollywood's problems become much more severe. Well, it's a good point. I think the aesthetic experience you're saying of going to a theater, experiencing a movie on a big screen, that sense of community is still a draw, and that's why the movie industry is doing so well. And you could argue that the uh, music industry, even though the CD sales are plummeting, the live music business is still very healthy. People are still going out and seeing shows. They like that experience of going to see the show in the theater with other people and experiencing that uh, that band together. Right. The concert business, at least in terms of gross dollars, is has been doing relatively well the last couple of years, although obviously part of that is owes to increasing ticket prices and whatnot. Right. The fall is traditionally the time of year when the music industry perks up. I mean, that's that's when their blockbusters come out. We've got these big releases coming up in the fall, Jeff. Uh, Kenny Chesney, Bruce Springsteen, 50 Cent, Kanye West, Alicia Keys. Is it make or break time for the, uh, the record industry if those records don't all do well? Oh, I think that many of them will do well. I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's a cyclical business that, for better or worse, is sort of most of the, or a disproportionate amount of the volume and, and sales is done during the sort of last three, four months of the year. And so I, obviously some of those, those releases are going to do, comparatively, are going to do better than releases earlier this year. I don't think that they will be enough to put the industry in positive territory for the year. I just think it's, it's too late for that. And I, I don't think that these sales are suddenly going to sort of be so enormous that they're going to offset all of the sort of damage that's been done by, you know, the week sales so far. Yeah. Thank you very much, Jeff. Uh, Jeff Leeds of the New York Times uh, covering business and the culture of music uh, has been our guest on Sound Opinions. Thank you very much. No problem. That is Max Roach, uh, one of the great drummers of all time. People characterize him as a jazz drummer, but he was so much more. He died at the age of 83 a few days ago. He, along with a handful of other greats, Thelonious Monk, Dizzy Gillespie, people of that ilk, basically invented bebop music in the 40s. He was the last one left. He was. He was the last link to that era. And in a, in a way, when we think about people like Buddy Guy and B.B. King, when, when they die, they will be the last links to that era of the blues. Max Roach was the last link to that sort of post-war era of jazz, which completely 
uh, reinvented the language, not only of jazz, giving it a harder edge, you know, reinventing the har- harmonics, but also reinvented the art of drumming. Before Max Roach came along, drummers in jazz were essentially timekeepers. They were, you know, it was a four to the floor. Kick drum was, was the prominent uh, instrument in, in keeping the rhythm. And, and essentially they were background musicians. You didn't hear the prominence of the drums in a lot of jazz recordings until that Max Roach era. His voicings on the drums were as essential to the sound of the songs as any other uh, musician in the ensemble. Well, and he reached to Africa and the polyrhythmic drums of, of the African tribes and the way that the drums actually were used to communicate. But he didn't stop there. He saw that these rhythms would continue to the future. And, I mean, he was he was listening to hip-hop until the day that he died. That's a key point, Jim. For me, why I admire Max Roach so much is the curiosity of this guy. Max Roach never stopped listening, never stopped growing as a musician. He traveled all over the world and embraced hip-hop in, in the early 80s. He, uh, he, you know, he did a show with Fab Five Freddy in the early days of hip-hop. And when everybody was crying outrage about how hip-hop was destroying music... Max Roach was saying this is a continuum we're part of. This is continuing the line of great African music in this country. In the same way that he embraced the free jazzers like Anthony Braxton and Cecil Taylor, who... Again, the jazz community was in an outrage over because they were yeah. ruining jazz. Max Roach was saying, no, this is the future, and I want to play with these people. A great open-minded attitude, the exact opposite of the Marsalis brothers who would have us encase jazz in, in aspic yes, forever. Yes, absolutely. And, and Max Roach, I know he's near and dear to your heart, if only because he uh, he jammed with one of your heroes, Neil Peart. Neil Peart of yeah. Rush. Yeah, no, I got to see Max perform. I mean, you know, guitarists in the rock world have to make the pilgrimage to see Les Paul perform. Every rock drummer who cared at all about the art went to see Max at least once, and it was a highlight, believe me. We're going to play something to pay tribute to him, one of the greats. Absolutely. Uh, His Freedom Now Suite in 1960 was a groundbreaking piece of work in the way it uh, created jazz compositions around the idea of, of the black struggle for freedom in this country. And here's a track from that record. It's called Freedom Day. His future wife, Abby Lincoln, also appears on this track as a vocalist. But the key to this track, as usual, is Max's drumming. It's Freedom Day from Max Roach on Sound Opinions. That is the great jazz drummer Max Roach, dead at the age of 83 from his classic 1960 album, Freedom Now Sweet. Coming up on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media, an overview of the phenomenal career of Rocky Erickson, a founder of psychedelic rock, a pioneer of punk rock, and we're going to talk to his biographer, Kevin McAllister.
You're listening to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. is one of the out-and-out wildest rock singers. The talent behind Rocky's voice is the mystery factor that no one could touch. To this day, he stands alone and is revered as such an unusual artist because he had the gift of that wonderful voice. Greg, that is uh, the great ZZ Top guitarist Billy Gibbons being quoted in a movie by uh, Kevin McAllister, the director who has filmed a wonderful biography of Rocky Erickson called You're Gonna Miss Me. Sound Opinions had a movie night a while back and showed it here in Chicago. We interviewed Kevin as part of that. We're going to hear from him shortly. But we wanted to use that as our introduction for a discussion on one of the most extraordinary careers in rock history. That song, the very first salvo of psychedelic rock in the universe in 1965, coming from Austin, Texas of all places, not considered a psychedelic visionary hotbed by any means. (laughs) The reason that song became such a huge hit was that voice, Rocky Erickson. Roger Kynard Erickson, an incredible voice that many critics have compared as a a combination of fellow Texan Buddy Holly, Little Richard, and James Brown. What a voice. And it led the 13th Floor Elevators after Erickson had already had a minor hit on his own with another group called the Lingsmen. The Elevators came together in Austin, Texas as a sort of super group put together by this guy, Tommy Hall, who was a, a poet and a psychedelic explorer, a visionary, who also played the amplified electric jug. <laughs> Stacy Sutherland, an incredible guitarist. Erickson on vocals. There was going to be a second vocalist in the band, a woman by the name of Janis Joplin. But uh, she decided the elevators were just too far out for her, and she wasn't even good enough to sing beside Rocky. So she went up to San Francisco and let those Texans do their own thing. I think the reason that there was an element of awe in Billy Gibbons' voice when he talks about something that happened 40 years ago, Rocky Erickson, was that, you know, Gibbons was in one of those Texas bands that had to deal with the fact that the 13th floor elevators were also on the scene and just better than everybody else. They just, they were the same age, but they just seemed older, more experienced, more worldly. They were singing about stuff nobody else was singing about. These bands were still stuck in the cars and girls mode of writing garage rock songs, and suddenly the 13th floor elevators appear, and they are missionaries proselytizing about 
acid, dropping acid, and by extension, creating acid rock, psychedelic music to bring to the world. And not just to get high, but to access the kingdom of heaven, <laughs> which is within all of us. They had a philosophy about it, Greg. They were the first band to coin the term on, on an album, certainly. The psychedelic sounds of the 13th floor elevators appeared in 1966. It was produced by one Leland Rogers, the brother of Kenny Rogers, by the way. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> and on the back cover, uh, you have a manifesto of sorts. Recently, it has become possible for man to chemically alter his mental state and then alter his point of view. Right away, this sounded like visionary music. No one else on the planet was doing this. When they went up to San Francisco in the fall of 66, a lot of people talk about uh, San Francisco inventing the psychedelic area. Well, no, that's not exactly how it went. They were playing bluegrass up there. When the 13th floor elevators went up there, they go, man, these guys are not only singing about acid, they're dropping acid, they're playing on acid. They got busted for drug abuse in in, in Texas. Again and And again. These were the true outlaws. These were the true bad boys. I mean, the Grateful Dead were in awe of the 13th floor elevators when they showed up, and they started dropping acid and doing their performances soon after. Jefferson Airplane, the same thing. We're going to play something, I think, that not only uh, illustrates how the psychedelic experience was talked about in Tommy Hall's lyrics, but how the band evoked it. Psychedelic scholars and aficionados talk about an experience called synesthesia, which is when you're under the influence of psychedelic drugs, you can literally see musical notes when you're listening to great music. Music is perceived as colors and texture and visuals. And I think the elevators did that incredibly well. With a song like Fire Engine, you feel the siren and the rush of the fire engine. With a song like Roller Coaster, you're on that roller coaster. (laughs) And this song, Reverberation Doubt, that sense that the entire world is vibrating. People who are tripping talk about being one with the flower. Well, that's what you're hearing when the elevators are doing it with music to make you feel like you're on drugs. Reverberation Doubt from the 13th Floor Elevators, the epitome of psychedelic music in 1966. Groundbreaking stuff. 
Jim, it may seem like we're celebrating acid and, and, and acid rock, and to an extent we are. I mean, there was a possibility and a vision there that uh, boded well for the future when people were starting to experiment with this stuff in the mid-60s. But there was a horrible, horrible downside to all of this. And, and Rocky Erickson's life is sort of uh, the prime example of that. It went from this great vision, this great possibility in the mid-60s to an incredibly bad trip yeah. in, in the 70s. And Rocky Erickson's life is an example of that. He got arrested again for a drug possession in the late 60s. In Texas, you could face a 20 years in prison for possession of a single marijuana joint. To avoid a lengthy prison term, Rocky pleaded insanity and instead ended up in the Rusk Mental Institution in Texas, which was for hardcore people, mentally deranged people. I mean, he was in there with uh, rapists with child and pedophiles, and murderers, rapists yeah. and murderers. I mean, it was it was an awful, awful place. In Rusk, he was uh, submitted to all sorts of drug therapies, electroshock therapy. It was three years of pure hell for Rocky Erickson. Yeah. When he reemerged in 1972, he was a, a drastically changed man. Yeah, Greg, there were the psychedelic drugs, there was whatever happened to Rocky in Rusk, and then there's the fact that for many young men in their early 20s, that's when schizophrenia manifests itself. Rocky has since been diagnosed as a schizophrenic. He hears voices. His brain works against him. It's his own worst enemy. He came out of Rusk and was dealing with all these things. He managed to make music, extraordinary music that we're going to talk about in a bit, for a couple of years. But then, little by little, all these problems compounded, and he wound up essentially living as a homeless person on aid and uh, eventually having a fight within his family between his mother, Evelyn, and his younger brother, Sumner, over who could take care of Rocky because he needed serious help. That is the subject of a great film that, that works as a wonderful music movie and also a crumb-style biography called You're Gonna Miss Me by our friend Kevin McAllister, great music journalist who has since become a documentary maker. We had a special Sound Opinions movie night a while back, something we want to continue to do, where we showed the film and had a crowd of Chicagoans come in and see it at the Music Box Theater. Kevin McAllister flew out here from Los Angeles, and we talked to him afterwards about why he wanted to make this film. I grew up in Texas as a rock fan in the 80s, and in doing that, Rocky Erickson was sort of like, you know, the Loch Ness Monster. You, sort of, you thought he existed, you heard all these sort of t stories about him that you didn't know if it were true or not, and there were rumored sightings. But at that time, he was already sort of hermetic as he was at the beginning of the film. So I was a, I was a big fan of his music, uh, but more importantly, I was sort of interested in sort of figuring out what had happened to him and the story behind his life, which was had been mythologized to a certain extent, but uh, sort of wanted to get to the bottom of it a little bit more. You know, there is this cult of... Uh well, it's as old as literature itself. I was going to say in rock and roll, you know, with, with Sid Barrett and with uh, Brian Wilson, but really it's in Faulkner, it's in, in Dostoevsky, you know, the idea of the, the damaged genius, the idiot savant, the person who isn't all there mentally, and that is the source of their genius. You don't mythologize. You know, Rocky has a mental illness, and he has this incredible talent. Did you ever get closer to understanding how those two things are connected? Was he a genius musically because he was damaged psychologically, or did the, did the damage come from the genius, or what? I think that that myth is exactly that. It's a sort of romanticized uh, you know, vision of an artist. But to me, uh, the two are, I wanted to separate them as much as possible. And I'm th I think if you've ever spent time in a mental hospital, you know, it's not teaming with Brian Wilson's or Rocky Erickson's. It's teaming with people who are having difficulty coping with life. And I think when the, some of those people also have talent, it makes their talent that much more singular. But I think that the relationship is romanticized only in those few that it's seen in. Well, yeah, I think the movie really debunks that by showing, you know, the, the suffering in Rocky's life. What an awful way to live for so many years. Yeah. 
Now, you did a, a marvelous job, I think, of uh, journalism. At some point, you must have just wanted to throw the camera aside and go, well, you just, you know, what are you doing to this guy? You, you <laughs> want to get involved and become involved in the story. I mean, it, it must have been difficult to, to sort of remain an impartial observer because clearly you were able to get all sides of the story. It was, and also it became clear to me that what the story is is, is how when you interact with him, you think you know what's right for him. You know what I mean? And so, in a way, I was engaged on it on that level, and that's sort of how it, I was able to inform the film personally, but at the same time, I couldn't presume to know what was right for him any, any more than these other people could. So, it, it was actually easier to stay objective. It was an extraordinary experience for me when I first saw the film sitting with you, and in front of us was Rocky, and there was Evelyn, and there was Sumner. And they all walked out, and they seemed pretty pleased. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a pretty good trick. My favorite part about watching it for the first time in the theater with Rocky was that he would laugh at the exact same times that he laughed on screen in person. <laughs> Tommy was a big jug band fan. He would put a microphone next to the jug to amplify it and mm -hmm. go took it. Mm -hmm. Hey, gentlemen, how are you? You have to have a lot of uh, lung power to do that. Yeah, you have. Gene, you, you can get different sounds out of it, too, huh? Yeah, yeah, you got to be able to vote strong. Who is the head man of the group here, gentlemen? Well, we're all heads. All right. It's the 13th floor elevators, ladies and gentlemen. Nice to have you with us. How about the guys in the uh, elevators, uh, the, the, the surviving members? The, the drummers in the movie. Uh, the bass player, I went to pre-interview him, and he lived in this trailer at his mom's house. I walked in, he talked to me for a second, and then, I'm not exaggerating, he threw up on me. And then, and then he told me I had hepatitis C. And then, so oh I was, I, I, I sort of, that was sort of the level of articulus we were dealing with there. And I thought since, you know, Rocky was having a little trouble telling a story, too, that it would, it would just sort of you, you, be gratuitous. You, you missed that. They had the elevators panel at South by Southwest. No, I saw, I saw that. Yeah, Remember, yeah. But that was the guy who didn't talk. Yeah, yeah. There at all. A, there was a couple of catatonic guys up he was, there on He stage. was like a zombie. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And more catatonic than Rocky, which was yeah, horrifying. Yeah, worse. Stacey Sutherland's and, dad. Yeah, yeah. Stacey Sutherland was shot by his wife in a domestic dispute in 1977. Another happy story. And um, Tommy Hall, the jug player, sort of disappeared in 1970 and resurfaced in the early 90s. He'd been living in a flop house or, a, you know, a residential hotel in the Tenderloin of San Francisco ever since. And I think he did acid every Saturday. He did it once a week regularly and was writing a book. And I went to interview him. He refused to be interviewed because he, had, he thought that um, people would find him and wanted to kill him. So... I sort of left that where it was, but it was definitely definitely an interesting afternoon. I mean, we have a cautionary 60s tale here. Five elevators, one of them's dead, and the other four all sound crazy. Uh, I mean, I think ironically, uh, Ronke turned out the best of any of them. I mean, he's performing <laughs> yeah. again, you know? I mean, he's he, has, he can drive. There's a kids don't do drugs commercial yeah, if ever oh I heard God. one. Yeah. That was a little of our conversation with Kevin McAllister, the director of You're Gonna Miss Me, film biographer of Rocky Erickson. Greg, as we said, he came out of Rusk State Mental Hospital, Rocky, and he wasn't in very good shape. He would continue to deteriorate, but he had a very productive period from about 1975 into the early 80s, shuffling between Austin and San Francisco and being one of the key American artists that laid the groundwork for punk rock. Phase two, you know, psychedelic legend when he went into the hospital, punk rock hero 
when he comes out. The songwriting material was coming from his head, uh, his very, very addled mind. Uh, he was a fan of horror movies. He was incorporating a lot of that imagery into his songs. It's impossible to escape his experience at Russ Mental Hospital as well in a song like Bloody Hammer when he talks about being hammered yeah. by these doctors. Uh, you know, that's a pretty direct reference to his experience at Rusk Hospital. I think of demons. Yes, indeed. Listen to these song titles, you know, coming out of uh, this era. I think of demons. Don't shake me, Lucifer. It's a cold night for alligators. Creature with the atom brain. Stand for the fire demon. Bloody hammer. <laughs> I mean, this man was seeing these visions of yeah, horror in yeah. his head and writing songs about him. Brutal, hard-hitting, slamming songs that, as you said, form a template for punk rock music. Let's play one of them. One of the most... <laughs> outlandish visions of, of Rocky Erickson's career. Two-headed dog, red temple prayer. I've been working the Kremlin with a two-headed dog. I mean, <laughs> where did that come from? Who knows? The mind of Rocky Erickson. But boy, it sounds great. <laughs> Greg, one of the best songs from Rocky Erickson's uh, second phase of his career, the punk rock years, Red Temple Prayer, Two-Headed Dog, Hmm. amazing stuff. He was really productive into the early 80s, and then things began to fall apart. He increasingly was living alone in his home, not taking any medication, suffering from schizophrenia, essentially dying a slow, painful death, surrounded by every appliance in his house, all the radios, all the TVs turned up full blast Mm -hmm. to drown out the voices in his head. Musicians worshipped him. Uh, the Texas community would look in on him, try to help him, occasionally bring him out to play as uh, his last real show for some time was in 1987, playing with the Butthole Surfers, a psychedelic band from a new era that worshipped what he had done before. Here's a clip from the film, You're Gonna Miss Me, where uh, Gibby Haynes of the Butthole Surfers talks about those weird Rocky non-shows, and then uh, we hear from Rocky himself, interviewed years later, about why he stopped performing. He didn't want to come to the gig. And they had to, they told him that they're going to go to the store and get some candy or something. So he got in the car with them and they showed, they pulled up the back door of the Ritz, hung a guitar on him and pushed him on stage. I just decided not, I didn't want to do it anymore, you know. Why? I don't know. Are you glad? I guess so, you know. (laughs) 
Wow, that is scary stuff. The voice of Rocky Erickson surrounded by all this electronic gear turned up to 11 yeah. to drown out the voices in his head. It gives you a real snapshot of what Rocky's life was like uh, during that period. We're going to be back with more of the Rocky Erickson story. It has a happy ending, folks, so stick with us. You're listening to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. Later on, we're also going to review the new album from Rilo Kiley. Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. What you're hearing there is the uh, the very emotional ending to this Kevin McAllister movie about uh, Rocky Erickson, in which Rocky actually picks up the guitar and starts playing an acoustic tune that uh, is obviously unrecorded uh, until that moment. And uh, it sort of leads you with a hopeful feeling about this movie, but there's still not a sense that Rocky is completely out of the woods yet as far as his ability to play an instrument and get back out there and play in front of people. Well, there has been a happy ending. In the last couple of years, Rocky Erickson has come out of Austin and started playing live gigs. His first ever show in Chicago was last summer. It took him 40 years to get here. People were crying when they saw him perform at the Intonation Festival at Union Park. First of all, there was no sense of what it was going to be like. A number of us had seen those performances in Austin where he would show up there with his arms crossed. Sing and half clearly, a song. Clearly disinterested, not, didn't want to be there. Well, he was fully engaged. Uh, he was playing guitar with an incredible amount of spirit. There was a rawness there. And that voice, that miracle of voice, Jim, that you described at the top of, of the segment was still there. Uh, he still had it. Uh, he was performing all his classics the way you wanted to hear them. He was not just a stick figure up there on no, stage. There was no ghost. He, he was, was happy en- to he, be there. He was engaged. And since then, he has played at the Coachella Festival in California. He played at Lollapalooza this summer in Chicago. He's out and about again. There's a spirit, a sense that uh, Rocky Erickson is back and that we may hear some new music from him yet. One of the most remarkable recoveries in, in rock history. Well, as we said before, Greg, we did this Sound Opinions movie night where we showed Kevin McAllister's film, You're Gonna Miss Me. It's extraordinary, folks. It's out there on DVD if you're interested. Uh, we showed it here at the Music Box Theater. We had a crowd come in. We interviewed Kevin afterwards. And that's how we wrapped up our conversation, by asking Kevin if he ever thought he'd see Rocky Erickson on stage again. 
I was shocked when he picked up the guitar at, at the end of filming there. I mean, I never in a million years would have thought that he would perform again because of that period where he was basically propped up on stage to perform by well-intentioned, but, you know, obviously misguided people. So I, I, all of this is a huge surprise to me. But you have mixed feelings. You've only seen him perform once, and you mm -hmm. haven't seen him do one of these full sets. Yes. Well, I saw him at Coachella, which is not the ideal conditions for anyone, and it you know, he wakes up at 5 and his show is at 3, and it was 110 degrees. It was hard for me to separate the fact that he's even playing again at all from the quality of the performance. I don't know, I don't know if, I would, if I came to it cold, if I would think it was, you know, this great uh, musician with this wonderful voice. I mean, I think his music's fantastic, obviously, was the motivation for the film. Yeah. But in seeing it perform, it's too complicated for me to well, sort the of thing, judge Well, the thing it. that struck me now, after having, when I first saw the movie, he hadn't performed yet. Now seeing it again, uh, when Evelyn says, these people just want to get him on stage again. Mm. You know, obviously Evelyn has some disconnects from reality herself, but she was right about that. That's true. You know, people nursed him back to health and now they're making money on him again. Right. As someone who cares about this man having made this film about his life, do you think that there's that cynical thing happening? What's interesting and what hopefully the movie kind of became about was Nobody really has disinterested motives. His mother obviously had complicated reasons for doing what she did, but some of it was right. And it's Sumner obviously has complicated reasons for doing what he did. Objectively, it's probably better that he's on medication and you know not living in a house with 15 radios going at the same time. But at the same time, you know, I think both of them have complicated motives, and I wanted to hopefully at least show that to some extent and not paint them black and white. Yeah. What's, what's next for him? I mean, do you think he's at a state now where... You know, we could see new recordings from him. Uh, it's, it seems clear that there's a bunch of songs that are in various states of completion uh, that are in some kind of an archive. I mean, what do, what do you see in the near future for him in terms of releasing some of this stuff well, and writing new music? Apparently he's got about 120 unreleased songs, and the plan as of now is that he's going to make a record sometime next year with Billy Gibbons. And wow. they just sent him like 60 of the songs that he's going to listen to, and they're going to collaborate on an album. So Gibbons would produce this? I guess produce and perform on it. I'm not entirely sure what his role would be. I mean, it would seem like he needs somebody like that to give it the, you know, almost like what Clive Davis did with San Carlos Santana. Exactly. You know, to say, you've been ignoring this guy, and he needs to be rediscovered. Just don't get the Matchbox 20 guy near him. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, please don't, yeah. <laughs> Although Everlast and, and Rocky would yeah, be Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah. That's true. Fantastic movie, Kevin. Thank um, you guys so much. It's such a pleasure to be thank here. Thank you for coming in. Thank you. To wrap up our discussion on Rocky Erickson, we felt there was only one place to go, and that was to illustrate his incredible influence on rock music over the last 40 years. We talked about what an influence he had on the Texas scene in the mid-60s, and that has continued. Many bands out there playing his songs to this day. Best compiled on one of the great tribute albums of all time, Where the Pyramid Meets the Eye, released in 1990. Here's a selection of tracks from that particular album on Sound Opinions. I walked with the zombie Zombie. I walked with the zombie last night.
a complete list of all those artists performing Rocky Erickson songs, check out the footnotes at soundopinions.org. Greg, that is a song called The Moneymaker, which is the first single and video from Under the Black Light, the fourth album by the L.A. guitar pop indie rock band Rilo Kylie, or at least they were indie rock until recently. Personally, I think that is the worst song about prostitution since Donna Summers, she works hard for the money. But I'll <laughs> save my opinions on the rest of the album until the uh, second portion of this review. Who is Rilo Kylie? They have made three fine albums for independent labels over the last couple of years, have been building quite a buzz. And then the uh, one of the two singers, Jenny Lewis, uh, broke out even more last year with a very strong country record called Rabbit Fur Coat, country pop, alternative country. She was on Sound Opinions and it was a fine performance. They have been struggling, I think, with this issue of authenticity throughout their career. There is a horrible list of bands that are fronted by actors or former actresses, Russell Crowe's 30-odd foot of grunts and Jared Leto's 30 seconds to Mars. Blake Sennett, the, uh, one of the two main songwriters and singers, and Jenny Lewis, the other, were both child actors. They haven't been in the acting game for some time, but they had a quite a, a, a long resume. Blake was in the, that TV show uh, Boy Meets World, and Jenny was in everything from Pleasantville to episodes of Roseanne. People thought they had them typecast, and then they wanted to reinvent themselves as musicians. I think they did that very effectively by doing these great indie rock records, and uh, enough to the point where they got enough attention to sign to Warner Brothers. This is their big shot at the big time, Under the Black Light. Let's play a song and then give our opinions on the uh, Sound Opinions Buy It, Burn It, Trash It scale. This is Rilo Kiley, Dream World. She was the girl with the string around her neck And with the boy who could only give her less It could be more if she learned to never expect And now she is her From the new Rilo Kylie record, Under the Black Light, uh, Jim, in my opinion, one of the two best songs on the record. It happens to be co-written by Jenny Lewis and Blake Sennett. The other best song on the record is uh, also a Sennett-Lewis collaboration called Breaking Up. The reason I say that, Jim, is there is a subtext of this record that I think needed to be more fully explored. I wish it was. Uh, and that is that uh, Sennett and Lewis not only used to be boyfriend and girlfriend and broke up, but there were also some competition going on, and they each had solo releases mm-hmm. in the last year. Uh, Sennett with his band, The Elected, uh, Lewis with her acclaimed solo debut, Rabbit Fur Coat. I think the fact that Lewis is even back in this band is a surprise to some people because uh, a lot of people thought, you know, once the uh, the diva makes her solo record, she's off on 
on her solo career, and with good reason. She's she's the star of this band. There's no doubt about it. But I think she makes really good music with Senate, and it's disappointing to me that they don't collaborate more often. There's a tension there between these two figures that's played out in that song that we just heard, Dream World, which to my mind is a dead ringer for for one of those classic Fleetwood Mac, Lindsey Buckingham rumors songs. And that, that's the template for this record, that, that, that California pop of the 70s with a little bit of a disco touch to it. There's some dance rhythms in this record. But it's a disappointing record to me. Jenny Lewis, a fairly smart lyricist, uh, writing here about sex as the most addictive, dangerous drug in L.A. nightlife, and you know the well, dangerous liaisons that go yeah. on there. Not you only know, writing about that, but but fifteen is a song that basically forgives, if not champions, a fifteen-year-old underage girl seducing older men. Well, it's, it's really it's, it's creepy. It's, it's, it's a it, creepy it, song, and it's a creepy album from that respect. And I I don't mind the creepiness so much. I just don't think she's saying anything new about a subject that has been well tilled. You know, somebody like Brian Ferry just does this material so much better, you know? Mm-hmm. And I, I think they just sound like little schoolgirls and schoolboys uh, taking this on. And I wish the real essence of this band is Blake Sennett and Jenny Lewis, and I wish those two had really engaged what's going on in that relationship, and this record could have been something. As it is, there are moments on it that I think are worth burning, but in general, this is not a very good record. I think this is one of the biggest turkeys of the year. This is absolutely a trash it record as far as I'm concerned, Greg. I don't need to revisit Fleetwood Mac. They did it just fine. Overall, it is so overproduced and so horribly glossy and so carefully marketed. They, I, I figured out the formula was they sat in a room and they said, if we could only bring together Sheryl Crow and Hannah Montana to get together the AAA adult alternative audience oh with that Kitty Bop audience, that's what we want. That's what they did. This is a lousy, lousy, bad record. But uh, maybe next week we'll have some good records. What do we got coming up? Jim, you're going to need to pick me up, and I think next week's show is going to give it to you. We are going to highlight the best leadoff tracks of all time. Greg, as always, Sound Opinions is produced by Matt Spiegel, Jason Saldana, and Robin Lynn, with the tallest member of our team, Todd Bachman, taking the week off. I don't know why, other than the fact that his wife, Jill, just gave birth to a lovely young son, Henry Bachman. Another mind for us to corrupt in the future. <laughs> and, of course, our executive producer and uh, fearless leader is Southside, Tori Malatia, who, I have it on good authority, plays a mean electric jug himself. This is Street Radio for Unsung Hero, riding in the Rigo, trying to stay legal. In case you missed it, here's an album we recently reviewed on Sound Opinions. We do it for the people and the struggle of the brothers and the folks, the lovers of the dope. Experiments to discover hope, scuffle for notes, the rougher I wrote, times was harder. Went from rock starter to the voice of a martyr. That is a track called The People, which is a single from the seventh album by rapper Common. The record's called Finding Forever. Let's play a track here that features an unlikely collaboration with another artist who's been on Sound Opinions, the English singer and firebrand Lily Allen and Common. The song is called Driving Me Wild. Today show, be on the treadmill, uh, like okay, go. Got a body, a uh, body that you can't pay for. That means she has some D's on her, but they want fake though. Every party she goes, trying hard to be chose. They say it's hard for a pimp, but extra hard for these Reading us and people mad, trying to get these scoops. Chasing the actor for a Bentley coupe. She recruited a ball player from the Clippers. Then came the pumps off, thinking she number one. Where she was just to jump off. Doing all she can for a man and a baby. 
driving herself crazy like the astronaut lady. That's common with Lily Allen on a song called Driving Me Wild, a song about a desperate social climber who's on that <laughs> treadmill like OK Go. Common will sprinkle his albums full of clever pop cultural references. He is one of the smartest, most inventive lyricists out there. His subject matter, as with that song, Driving Me Wild, the black working class, the blue-collar people who are out there trying to make a better life for themselves, talking about everyday lives. There's a lot of live performances on this record. These are first-class players, many of them in Common's touring band. No, it's exciting. Common's this record. to go out with the live band again, and, and he does that better than almost anybody in hip-hop. You know, Greg, he is dismissed cavalierly by a lot of hip-hop fans as a backpack rapper. He's a preachy hippie. He's a goody two-shoes. He gets outside of himself, and he plays a lot of different roles on this album, and it makes it interesting. We heard in Driving Me Wild where he's remarking on a woman's chest size, which is a very uncommon-like thing to do. But he's playing this role, and that enables him to take a crack, and yet there are lines he won't cross. So when it comes to, say, hoes, he intentionally leaves that out of the rhyme. And it continues that debate we've been talking about so much on Sound Opinions, the power of words, reminding us this is a guy in the old-school tradition who believes that the words he uses matter. His words have never been better. I think this is a great album. Definitely on the buy it, burn it, trash it scale, buy it album. I like this record a lot, Jim. I think he's going to get docked some points because it, it, it contains fewer surprises than B. And album number two is definitely going to pale by comparison. It's going to, okay, you guys have done this, but you know what? More of a very good thing is not a bad thing. I mean, No, not it, when it's, it's this good. It's still a very solid record. I think if you're looking for mellow, melodic, jazz-flavored hip-hop with very smart lyricism, this is the go-to guy right now, and, and, and it's a buy it record. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. Now it's time to hear what you have to say. New messages. Thank you very much for an excellent show today. I really enjoyed it, guys. It was tremendous to listen to, and I am compelled to go out and buy two albums from which I heard on your show today. The first one was M.I.A., which I thought that music was very funky and refreshing and nice to listen to. And the other one was the new pornographers. Yes, I know it was late. We were greeting the sun before long. Thank you for a terrific, informative show, and I'm looking forward to listening to it again. My name is Carrie, and I'm from Skokie. Thanks. Hi, my name is Byron Sweet, and I'm from Elizabeth City, North Carolina. I'm listening to your show right now, and you guys have just recommended some uh, hip-hop, and the Three Feet High and Rising album was a great recommendation, but the Outcast, Come on. There's so much better hip-hop out there that really represents hip-hop for what it is. There's Mad Villain, for instance, which would have been an excellent recommendation, especially if anybody's looking for something even remotely clever. So nasty that it's probably somewhat of a travesty having me. Then he told the people you could call me your majesty. And there's any number of things out there. Everybody's just got to open up and look at it. Thanks a lot. You guys have a great show. Bye. No more messages. To give us your opinion on Sound Opinions, call our hotline, 1-888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media.